Well, good morning, Emmanuel. It's, uh, it's great to be back. I was here about a year ago. You were in a different room. You've moved. Uh, it is great to see all of you. It is a real honor to be uh, asked to come back and to feel like over the course of a couple weekends, these past couple of years, I'm able to, to get to know you. I've certainly got to know uh, Zach and Aaron and still miss them, and it's difficult for me not to take them back with me. Um, but they belong here, and that's good. And uh, wonderful to get to know uh, Alex these past a few years now and uh, just watch uh, his journey. Uh, I was, I'm always amazed by how much he's able to do. And then there's all of you just seeing this church grow and uh, hearing you talk in Sunday school. And uh, I send you greetings from Mount Vernon in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, we love considering ourselves a sister of yours. I hope that's okay. And uh, Lord willing, you can all come visit us sometime soon as well. Uh, I want us today to think about disciple-making. That's what we're going to do over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, Jesus said in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, when we hear these verses, we often think about uh, evangelism, and that's appropriate. Uh, this is the Great Commission, the call to go forth and, and certainly to share the gospel. You can't become a disciple without first hearing the, the good news. But after you become a Christian, the process of sanctification begins, the process of beginning to look more and more like Jesus, and this takes time. So Jesus is, isn't telling us to, to stop investing in someone once he becomes a disciple, once she becomes a disciple. That process of disciple-making is, is ongoing. We're to continue to teach and continue to observe all that Jesus commanded. This is a process. It takes a lifetime, and it takes a church. Disciple-making is a community project. In other words, Jesus expects people in your life helping you to observe everything that he commanded. And there are people in my life who are helping me to observe all that Jesus commanded. I think for Americans especially, that's a very hard thing to grasp. We, are a, uh, we, we pride ourselves on being a can-do, independent people. And that is simply, if that's going to be our, our attitude, we're not going to be a Bible people. Because the Bible is very clear that you cannot live the Christian life rightly outside of the context of Christian community. So my ability to persevere in the faith is dependent, yes, first and foremost on God, but it's dependent on other Christians and primarily other Christians in the church that I serve. So what's at stake in disciple-making is none other than salvation. The genuineness of my faith is dependent on someone discipling me. And yes, I, I admittedly, and at least at Mount Vernon, you know, I, I have a title. Uh, I'm the senior pastor. But I recognize that I need to be discipled, just as every member of my congregation needs to be discipled. The genuineness of faith is dependent upon someone discipling you. And let me put it another way. You 
are the instrument that God has ordained to keep another Christian from falling away. In order for me to persevere, to not give up, to hear on the day of judgment, well done, good and faithful servant, I need other believers to personally and regularly and deliberately help me grow in Christ-likeness because sin is powerful and I need other Christians to help me fight. And this is disciple-making. Some of you may already have a couple of, of, of objections to something I've said, but today I want to discuss the disciple-maker's mission. I want to convince you of what I said. I want you to understand from the Bible what the task, the job description, the mission is of one who makes disciples. And I want you to walk away convinced that disciple-making is incredibly important. Now, I know if you're here in church on Sunday morning uh, and I say, do you think disciple-making is important? Like, who's going to say no? I'd just be silly. But is it, is it part of your life? You know, is it part of your DNA in that sense? How, how committed are you to disciple-making? Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible that we could turn to, to to talk about this, but I want us to turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be spending most of our time in Hebrews chapter 3, but in order to bring us up to speed, I want to start in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in a couple minutes, you're going to be thinking, I thought he was talking about disciple-making. What happened? Is he getting old and losing his ability to think clearly? No, we will get to it in a moment. But it's crucial that we build a foundation upon which we can discuss disciple-making because, frankly, that's what the text does. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, Hebrews is uh, a letter written to Jewish uh, background believers. They're tempted to give up on Christianity. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, the temptation to just to give up and walk away. Uh, there's an entire book in the Bible devoted to people struggling with that, and it's the book of Hebrews. They're really about to drift away. They're, maybe they're even in the process of drifting away, but the author doesn't want them to give up, and so he urges them to press on, you know, keep their eyes on Jesus. And so he says in verse 1, pay much closer attention to what they heard. Pay attention to the gospel. Years ago, I was a student driving from my hometown to where my university was uh, in Eugene, Oregon. And I'd often be on the road late at night, and I was a young driver, and I would be so tired I would almost fall asleep. Don't tell my parents. It was horrible. And uh, I would have to wake up and keep my eyes on the road. As if I didn't, you know, my very life was at stake. Uh, I needed to pay much closer attention to the road. Well, Paul is exhorting Christians to pay much closer attention to the gospel. They were falling asleep behind the wheel. They were drifting away from the gospel. Now, how do we pay much closer attention? Of course, we don't want to assume the gospel we want to be happily part of a congregation where we're being reminded weekly of the very basics of the gospel. We don't ever want to take that for granted. We don't ever want to think, well, I've graduated out of Gospel 101. You know, when can I find the 401 classes? And we want to be really content, being reminded of the gospel week in and, and week out. Uh, we want to pay much closer to attention. We want to dig into Scripture with zeal. We want to share the gospel regularly. I think if we're not evangelizing regularly, 
uh, I wonder if we're really paying attention to the gospel because there's something about the gospel that just propels you to want to, to, at least to want to share it with others, however hard or easy you may find that. Well, hop down to verse 14. There, in chapter 2, the author is reminding them of the gospel that in, in verse 1 he told them to pay attention to. Look at verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, this is referring to Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the author begins with the incarnation. Jesus took on flesh. God became man. Uh, he took upon himself a human body, uh, like yours and like mine, a body that could die. And he did it, verse 14, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of of the devil, and he did it to deliver us, sinners like you and like me. So we have a Savior who can deliver us because he became one of us. He himself never sinned, but in his humanity he was tempted in every way. Now, verse 17 has that word propitiation. Uh, this is a technical word describing what happened on the cross. Jesus made propitiation by bearing the wrath of God for sinners like us, sinners who deserve judgment in, in hell, Jesus propitiated God's wrath. God in his love sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die the death that you deserve to die. And Christ rose from the dead to prove that he can deliver you, and now he calls on you to follow him and to trust him. And this is the gospel. It's the message that the apostles preached in the first century. It's the message that, that your pastor preaches today. And it's what you must believe in order to be a Christian. But it's also something you need to remember and reflect upon and pay attention to if you are a Christian. In chapter 2, verse 1, he said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. Right now, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession who is faithful to him who appointed him. I'll stop right there. He says, consider Jesus. Meditate on him, his person, his work. Only Jesus can deliver. Now, at this point, it, it looks like the author's taking an aside. He starts talking about someone that his readers would have really appreciated, Moses. So let's go back to verse 2. We'll just pick it up right in the middle. Just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, 
Can you tell what the author of Hebrews is saying there? Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. We talked about that just a few minutes ago in Sunday school. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, verse 5. Jesus is a faithful son over God's house, verse 6. So they were tempted to pay attention to Moses. You know, Moses was the man. I mean, they looked back at, at their heritage, and Moses was basically, you know, greater than anyone. But he's saying it's insanity to pay so much attention to Moses that you're neglecting Christ. Yes, Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt, but, but Moses simply points forward to a greater deliverer, Christ. Moses delivered from Egypt. Jesus delivers from sin and from death. And that's why he explains in verse 5 how Moses testifies to the things that were to be spoken later. The gospel explicitly revealed in the life and ministry of Christ. Moses is an arrow pointing forward to Christ. Jesus is so much more glorious than Moses. Now, for us, we hear that like, oh, I so know that. But if you were a Jewish believer, seeker in the first century, this is just revolutionary. And we have to learn to appreciate this. Now, a couple of summers ago, I, um, I watched a little bit of professional soccer. And... Um, you know, this was a bit new to me, but my brother-in-law is a fanatic, and he has raised fanatics uh, of, of soccer, and we were watching European soccer, and I think it was called the Premier League, and I don't understand it completely, but I just, you know, that's what the family does, and I was, you know, being one with this family, and we were just watching soccer. Well, uh, a few days later, there was a soccer game on television that wasn't the Premier League. It was MLS, Major League Soccer. And it was the Portland Timbers, from where I'm from, and the New York Red Bulls. And I don't know why they named a team after a, a drink. That seems very strange to me. But I don't understand soccer. But I did notice this, that these players in the MLS were not nearly as good as these players in Europe. I mean, I don't know anything about it, but like whenever the European person kicked the ball, it like went right where it was amazing, like pinpoint accuracy, but not so much with the Americans. And they just seemed faster in Europe. And I don't know if this is true, like always, but it's what I observed, and I could totally tell that the Premier League was superior in, in every way, and that's the point of verses 2 through 6, to bring it back to something important. Just Jesus is absolutely superior in every single way. And this is sort of how he's launching uh, the book of, of Hebrews. The, these Jewish believers were tempted to give up on Jesus and go back to Moses, but they shouldn't do that. You know, don't trade in your Porsche for a Pinto. Some of you don't even know what a Pinto is, but you don't want it. <laughs> now, the author isn't done driving this point home. Look at verse 7. Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. This happened, what, what's being described here happened in the days of Moses. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. It's an ugly period 
in Israel's life. Moses led them out of Egypt. God preserved them with water and manna and quail. He gave them his perfect law, which is such a beautiful thing. Like that's, that was his way of saying, you're my people. I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you rules for life, and it's to show you that you're my people. God brought them to the edge of the promised land. So again and again, God proved himself reliable. It's always a good thing just to ask your own heart, you know, how, how have I seen God prove himself reliable in my own life? Whatever answer you find is not better than the answer found in Scripture, but it, it is good to reflect upon God's faithfulness in your, in your own life. These folks experienced God's faithfulness in a, in a tremendous way. God had proved himself reliable, and all the people had to do was trust him. They had to believe God and enter into the promised land. It was their land of rest. But first, they had to occupy the land. They had to take it over. But they were scared. And perhaps you know the story, but they were scared of entering that land. Um, they thought that the enemies there would overpower them and kill them. And so they didn't believe that God would protect them. And so they refused to enter. They, they hardened their hearts. It's just a way of saying, if you will, they, they refused to, to go. They refused to heed God's command. They rebelled against God. So what did God do? God sent them back into the wilderness. So what are you saying there? And for 40 years, they didn't enter the promised land. So verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. A rest there is just the physical promised land. They shall not enter my rest. Now, the whole tragedy is summarized, like in case we missed it, it's summarized in verse 15. Look down at chapter 3, verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't believe God's word. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust him. Now, this isn't just a history lesson. It is a history lesson, but it's not just a history lesson. Uh, verse 7 is for every Christian. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. So uh, he's speaking to the reader. He's speaking to you. If you hear his voice, now don't go and be like them. And so do you see that the danger for all of us? Like unbelief tempts all of us. There is not a day that goes by in the Christian life that you are not tempted to doubt God's goodness. That you're not tempted to doubt that God's, God's plan for your life, a, a life of holiness, is better than anything else. You just, I mean, don't do it now, but just turn on your phone, you know, and, 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 and just things just pop up that say, hey, don't trust God's plan for holiness. Don't trust that, that God wants you to meditate on him. No, I want your mind to meditate on this. And whatever this is that's, you know, just not helpful. It, it, at the very least, it's not helpful. And at the most, it's sinful. I'm just saying it's, it's all around us, isn't it? Just these temptations to, to really disbelieve God. We 
We may doubt him. We may doubt his word. We might doubt his goodness. We may doubt his love. We may doubt, you know, some people doubt that God's really interested in them. You know, they, they would say, I believe there's a God. I just, I have a hard time believing he really is interested in me. We may doubt the gospel. Uh, and if we allow these doubts to linger, everybody has doubts. I, I, I get that. But if we al allow these doubts to linger, if we act on them, we push away God as if God can be pushed away. I know he can't be pushed away, Pastor. I, I'm not saying that. But I just sort of figuratively speaking, we act as if God is a vase on the table that can just be cast aside because we don't want to see it. And when we do that and, and we call ourselves Christians, well, we're, we're functionally living a life that's no different than an unbeliever. So the author of Hebrews is trying to help them understand what it means to pay attention. So in that sense, we, like these individuals described in Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3, we can harden our hearts. Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp wrote a good book called How People Change, and they describe those who profess to be Christians, but their hearts are hard. Listen to how they put it. So this is a quote. There are people who, who know the Lord, but whose lives fail to push the expected fruit of faith. Their lives are not characterized by peaceful, loving relationships, a sweet, natural, day-by-day -day worship of the Lord, a wholesome and balanced relationship to material things and ongoing spiritual growth. Instead, these believers leave a trail of broken relationships, a knowledgeable but impersonal walk with God, a struggle with material things, and a definite lack of personal growth. Something is wrong with this harvest. It contradicts the faith that is supposed to be its source. Now, of course, of course, you think, well, how can they be saved? And so certainly, if you persist in this lifestyle, you know, this is not the life of a, of a Christian. But I just, I want to ask, does any of that resonate with you? You know, are you in any way living a life that contradicts your profession of faith? Do you say that you know the Lord while you lack spiritual fruit? Now, the really sensitive in us are, are just going to say all the time. I mean, where, where's the fruit? I want more fruit. But, but we all need to wrestle with that. It's an invitation for all of us, and it's one of the reasons we have Hebrews. Right? Hebrews is a warning not to profess faith in Christ if you continue to look nothing like Christ. It's not, it's not just a warning because the author of Hebrews gives us an answer. So here, I know that I'm a visitor. I know that I have no technical spiritual authority over you. But I'm going to ask you to do something. Look at Hebrews 3.12, but only Hebrews 3.12. Like, don't read on. I see you're reading on. Stop. All right, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So just stop there. Don't look anymore. In other words, be humble enough to recognize that this could be you. Right? Take care, brothers and sisters. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You know, back in the Great Recession, we heard of uh, companies that were too big to fail. Well, we can think we're too good to fail. That can't be me. You know, I don't just go to a church. I go to a church plant. You know, that this can't be me. I'm too good to fail. 
So verse 12 is a call to examine your own heart, your own temptations, the, the places in your life that you are most likely to stumble. Now, again, please don't look. I'll say please this time. Please don't look at verse 13. All right, I, have a, I, have a, I have a question for you. Given everything we've read in chapters 2 and 3, what would you expect the author to say next? So he's just told us about the Israelites whose faith crumbled under the leadership of Moses. They rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against God. He's told you that Jesus is so much better than Moses. So what would you, what would you think he would then say in verse 13? If you just think for a moment, what would you expect him to, to say? Well, let me tell you what I would expect. I'd expect him to say next, after saying, you know, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. If I were writing the Bible, I'd say next, consider Jesus. He's a better leader than Moses. He can soften your heart. He can protect you. Put your faith in him. Remember the gospel. Follow Christ. That's what I would expect. And it's true. But the author of verse 13 says something else. And now those of you who obeyed can look. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that your hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And where did that come from? As Christians, and especially as Christians in the same church, you have the responsibility to care and to be in one another's lives in such a way that you're encouraging one another to fight against sin. So I said at the beginning of the sermon that, 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 that you are an instrument that, that God ordained to keep another believer from falling away from the faith. Okay, now, now don't get me wrong. I believe in the doctrine of the perseverance or preservation of the saints. I believe in once saved, always saved. And... We are the means of grace God uses to protect and preserve our faith. So the Bible doesn't merely point us to Christ, but the Bible directs us to point one another to Christ. You have a living word that when you open it up in the morning and you get up and you, you read the Bible and you say, praise God, this Bible is reminding me to, to follow Jesus. But then you have, you have people around you that God says are there to point you to Christ. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. In other words, make disciples. So here's a definition of disciple-making that I get from really this verse. To disciple is to personally regularly and deliberately help another believer grow in Christ-likeness. Now, let me, let, me, uh, let me unpack that, all right? First, disciple-making needs to be personal. In verse 13, we're told to disciple one another. So I am helped by my own Bible reading. I'm helped by, by preaching uh, by hearing preaching, I'm helped by good Christian books, and all of this is valuable, but there is nothing like another believer coming alongside of me 
and urging me to keep on following Christ. There is no replacement for a Christian encouraging me to to lean into my all-sufficient Savior, reminding me of of Christ's goodness and and, pointing out evidence of God's grace in my life. I mean, isn't it encouraging to be encouraged? Oh, I love it. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. I'm getting slightly tired of people talking so much about introversion and extroversion. I get it. I I believe it's real. I think I'm kind of in the middle. I know there are some people who are paralyzed at the end of the service, like when it's that milling around time. There are some people who just want to go, they just want, they want to be under the carpet. You know, I I get that. I get that there are extroverts who just can't stop talking. You know, you're just like, how do you have so many words and where are they coming from? You know, I get that that is real, but this isn't about introversion. It's not about extroversion. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a day or 80 years. You need brothers and sisters willing to dig into your life and to exhort you to grow in Christ-likeness. We have a 97-year-old member, Hank Sturgis, who uh, is just sharp mentally. And um, I mean, he's kind of a big guy, but he's healthy. And he, um, his shoulder, he recently broke his shoulder, and so he can't come to church, which is sad. The dude's 97 years old, you know, like, it's old. I'm old, but, like, he's like granddaddy of me old. And, um, but, you know, I sit down with him in his, in his uh, living room, and I just want to know, Hank, how are you doing spiritually? You know, he doesn't get a pass from another believer coming alongside him and saying, dude, how are you doing spiritually? You know, you're on the couch. Are you just spending all your days watching the Braves games? Are you in the Word? How are you doing? He needs that. It doesn't matter how old he is. It doesn't matter how long he's been a Christian. It doesn't matter that he's like the greatest generation. The greatest generation needs the Lord as much as the millennial generation. Live in, so it needs to be personal. It needs to be personal. We live in the most depersonalized age in all of human history. You know, you can stay cooped up in your house and, you know, Amazon.com will deliver your lamp and um, the grocery store will now deliver you your peanut butter. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to step outside of your, your home and you can get everything you possibly need. You can, you can stalk your friends on Facebook. You know, you can get your news on Twitter. You don't, need even, you don't even need to pick up the newspaper on the... Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I say pick up the newspaper on the front, front porch. But the Christian life, it's got to be personal. There's just something inherently countercultural about Christianity, and we've got to embrace it. If you're a Christian, you need people in your life. So that's the personal. Second, disciple-making needs to be regular. So verse 13 says it ought to happen every day. You know, I think in the Greek it means every day. You know, there's a, there's a, oh, I'm reminded of Luke's account of the early church in Acts 2.46, and day by day, Attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with gladness and generous hearts. So there is a, there's a day-by-dayness to Christian community. There should be a constant rhythm of exhortation. There, there needs to be a regular, and I'll, 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 I'll add back, a personal touch. So I know life is be- busy, and I know that this isn't easy, but consider what's at stake. And that's everything that I've been saying thus far, like your, your salvation is at stake. So how can you be involved in another person's life in a, in a regular way? 
Well, my church in Atlanta, we have more than one weekly gathering. It seems like you do as well. You know, this is huge for us. Uh, it's huge for us to just have on our, on our calendar a time when we're going to be regularly together. I and mean, I'm struck that, that just the way God ordained life, there's a rhythm to our calendars. I'm, so, I'm thankful for Sunday. Like, I don't know what I would do if weeks were like nine days long. I don't think I can make it nine days without the gathering. You know, I'm just that weak. And, and I, I need to be reminded. I need God's word opened up um, to me. I'm in Sunday school class. You know, every, every Sunday morning, I'm in Sunday school class because although I'm about to preach, I need to hear. I need to be, I need to be washed in the water of the Word of God. And so I'm in there listening to, uh, listening to you know, Zach teach Sunday school class uh, a while ago. And I'm listening to other brothers do that. They're, they're ministering to me. This is a huge help. But, but more than that, I'm not just talking about regular in terms of, 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 of formal church involvement. You know, it could be, you know, that you meet someone for a weekly cup of coffee. It could be that, you know, you send a daily text. Now, the daily text is not personal. Don't let that be the only thing you do. But there needs to be regularity. Maybe you drive together to Bible study. Maybe you share a meal. Maybe it's all of the above. Maybe you garden together. I don't... It's, 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 it's regular. I'm not saying how it has to be done. But it's got to be regular. There's got to be a day-by-dayness to the, the Christian faith. I know of a couple of brothers at Mount Vernon. I was having lunch with one uh, a couple of days ago. It was Ryan. And he and Joseph, uh, they talk on the phone, I think, once a week on the way to work while they're, in the commu- while they're commuting. They just schedule that time to check in and pray for one another um, with their eyes open. Uh, you know, there's a day-by-dayness to their, to their discipling of one another. So remember what's at stake. We need personal and regular exhortation to keep us from falling away from the living God. We need the regular words of brothers and sisters because our hearts are far too easily hardened. All right, so personal, regular, and then third, disciple-making needs to be deliberate. Notice um, why we exhort one another. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, it's not enough to meet up personally and regularly. Basketball teams do that. Football teams do that. Reading clubs do that. Right? We exhort one another with a purpose. You know, we are deliberate. We want our words to be restorative and redemptive. Our aim is to use words to point other people to the beauty and power of the cross of Christ. And I got to tell you, friends, this is the hardest part. Um, Like, many of us are disciplined enough. If someone says it needs to be regular, I mean, you can add something to the calendar. If it needs to be in person, you can do that. But the deliberate part is some of us actually need to change our speech habits. Like, we're so accustomed to talking about things that are important but less important that sometimes this talking about the Lord isn't natural. Maybe for five minutes after a service it's natural, but then there's just something about not just life, but something about just cultures of churches over the past, I don't know how long, where the cultures of churches have changed, where the average Christian doesn't know how to to talk about the Lord in a way that doesn't sound like it's a a Hallmark movie. No offense to Hallmark movies. We've got to grow in that. 
You know, it's so easy to talk. And I don't, like, I talk about football. I mean, I don't, again, like soccer, I don't understand football. I'm more of a basketball guy. I mean, it's not sinful. If I'm, like, if it's, if I'm in, in our gathering and I hear a couple people talking about the, in the Georgia football, I mean, I don't think they're going to hell for that. You know, I get it. But if, if that's all we're talking about, just something is, like, I think, devastatingly wrong with our heart. And I think this is hard. But our goal is to help others grow in Christ's likeness by pointing people to the life and work of Christ. So let me give you a couple examples of this from Paul. Because Paul does this, as you can imagine, really well. Acts chapter 16, verse 40. So Paul goes to Philippi, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's seeing converts, and he's performing miracles, but the leaders don't like it. The leaders don't like anything that Paul is doing. So Paul and his companions are beaten and thrown into prison. Now, by the way, the next time God opens a door for you to share the gospel and you get a little skittish, I want you to remember, you're probably not going to be beaten and thrown into prison. And then go ahead and speak. All right? That was extra. Now, God protects Paul the whole time. And when Paul leaves jail, we're told that he makes a visit to some of these new Philippian believers, men and women, new Christians, who must have been personally scared that persecution is coming. So what did Paul do? In Acts 16.40, we learn that Paul and his companions, and now I quote, went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They encouraged them and departed. Now that word encouraged in Acts 16.40 is the same word for exhort in Hebrews 3.13. Paul encouraged them. He exhorted them. What did he say? We don't know for sure. But since he just left a beating and imprisonment, he probably reminded them it's an honor to suffer for Jesus. I'm fine. I praise, I praise the Lord that he gave me the privilege of suffering for, for him. It's not that I want you to suffer, friends, but I want you to know that if you do suffer, God is going to protect you. It's going to be okay. Jesus is worth it. Maybe he told them you know, the parable of, the, of, of the, the, the pearl of great price. You know, the gospel is more precious than anything. And I'd, I'd give up my whole body for it. He encouraged them. He probably told them to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he pointed them to the Savior so they, they, they wouldn't fall away. And we can do that. You know, you, you're, you know maybe your, your boss is just a horrible person. <laughs> it makes your life just awful. You know, and you share that with a friend. You know, like I'm having a hard time at work. And my boss is, it's, just, it's difficult. It's a difficult relationship. But I want you to know that um, I'm praying for him, my boss, that, that he would come to know Christ. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful that even though my job isn't really what I would want it to be, I'm thankful that um, my Savior is everything I want him to be. And just something as simple as that to make it clear that Jesus actually matters to you. And in that way, you're exhorting another believer. Let me give you one more example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 1 Thessalonians, so turn left. If you're in Hebrews, just turn left. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes, you, uh, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, exhorted in verse 12 exhorted each of you. That word exhorted in verse 12 is the same word we find in Acts 16.40 and Hebrews 3.13. But here it looks like there's a little sting to it. 
right? He's challenging them to walk in a manner worthy of God, which tells me that they were tempted to not walk in a manner worthy of God, and therefore he exhorted them. He's exhorting them. He tells them, don't drift away. You know, be encouraged to live like Jesus. So there's, it's, 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 it's exhortation, but it's got a little sting to it. So exhort is a comprehensive word. Sometimes it's a word of comfort. You know, Jesus is my all-sufficient Savior. Sometimes it's a word of exhortation. You really need to stop doing what you're doing. It's all, it's all exhortation because it's all helping another believer grow in Christ's likeness by pointing them to the merciful and holy Savior. Hebrews 3.13, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it's, it's to be deliberate. There's an intentionality in our, in our conversations that is necessary if we are going to be disciple makers. Now, I, uh, I don't know about Alex. I haven't asked him this particular question, but I did not enter pastoral ministry because I wanted to preach. I loved my job, and I thought that the work that I was doing in my, my secular job, I thought it, that it was valuable, but I couldn't shake the fact that I loved something more than my job. I loved spending time with a brother and talking about the Lord and talking about his future and his life. I love that. And I thought, like, really? There's like a whole job where this is what you do? You know? Sign me up. That kind of personal, regular, and deliberate ministry is what led me into pastoral ministry. Time with men like that changed me. And so I increasingly wanted to devote myself full-time to disciple-making. But I'm concerned that many believers have fallen into the trap of thinking that this is the work of pastors, that it's not the work of mothers and fathers and plumbers and electricians and lawyers and doctors, because it's really the work of Christians, all Christians. You don't have to enter pastoral ministry to be a disciple maker. It's a ministry for all of us. You know, often people ask me, you know, how, um, how can I get more plugged in at the church? How can I serve? And, you know, I try hard not to be snarky because I'm tempted. I don't know that snarkiness is a sin, but if it is, I think I'm sinning in that way. And I'm tempted to get a little snarky and you say, look around. <laughs> You're asking me how to get plugged in. Look at these people. Talk to them. Get to know them. Love on them. Figure out what's going on in their heart. You know, and I know, again, introvert, extrovert, I get that. It can be hard. But like the ministry of the church are the people in the church. And you have a blank check to get involved in their lives. Now, some people are going to say, please, I don't want to talk to you. Maybe, no, no one's going to say that. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be your best friend. But I mean, oh, the entire congregation is a ministry field. So that's our mission, personally, regularly, and deliberately helping another believer grow in Christ-likeness. And this is what we all need, because like Israel, like the first readers of Hebrews, we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're all subjects to what Lane and Tripp called seasons of gospel blindness. Let me give you one more quote from them, and then we'll wrap up. It is in the here and now that many of us experience a gospel blindness. Our sight is dimmed by the tyranny of the urgent, by the siren call of success, by the seductive beauty of physical things, by our inability to admit our own problem, 
and by the casual relationships, listen carefully, and by the casual relationships within the body of Christ that we mistakenly call fellowship. This is a danger for all of us. It's a danger for established churches. It's a danger for new churches. Life is busy. We get focused on our careers, on our children. We get lured away from Christ in so many different ways. We think that because we're going to church, everything is fine. But even in church, the the casual relationships that we're tempted to develop aren't enough to sustain us. It's not really fellowship. We need others to personally, regularly, and deliberately help us grow in Christ-likeness. Discipling is what every Christian needs. We need discipling so that our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And discipling is what every Christian must do, not because we're pastors or elders or deacons, but because if you're a Christian, you are part of the church, and that's your mission. Other people need you. People need to see the gospel afresh. And if you're a Christian, God has called you to this task. I don't know how to be any clearer. You can take the good news and personally, regularly, and deliberately apply it to another believer's life. With that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have good news to share. Father, we know that the good news is for a world full of lost sinners who, without embracing that good news with mind and heart, will spend an eternity in hell. We know that to be true, and so we pray that you would make us an evangelistic people. But Heavenly Father, help us to be people who know what it's like to disciple one another within the church as well, that we might grow together in grace and in godliness. Free up our hours free up our attitude, free up our lips that we might personally and regularly and deliberately help one another grow in Christ-likeness. I pray that for Emmanuel Church of Winston-Salem, that as this church grows numerically, it would grow in its passion, not only to minister to the nations, but to minister to one another, that this church might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.